in First John. We are walking through First, uh, Second, and Third John with the topic. Uh, follow me, looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is a very clear-cut, black and white, um, just difficult overall book. It's encouraging to some. It's incredibly challenging to others. And so let's start, as we always do, with a quick review of where we have come from over the last several weeks. The first chapter of First John talked about uh, how we are to experience the message to know the message, uh, to confess our need for the message. And then we got into chapter 2 over the last few weeks, talking about believing the message, obeying the message. And last week we talked about in verses 7 through 11, the command of love, to obey this command of love, to love like Jesus. And so at the end of last week in verse 11, it talked about how those who hate, they are blind. They do not know where they are going. And so they are uh, deceived and they are spiritually blind. We talked about how that's, that's obviously a major issue. Uh, well, that verse transitions us into tonight's teaching, which is verses 12, 13, and 14. And the theme of these three verses is assurance, knowing where you stand, knowing where you stand. So last week we talked about loving and hating and and where we stand on a daily basis, the environment of our hearts, um, our relationship with Christ, and what it looks like daily. Now we're going to be talking big picture spiritually, how to know where you stand uh, in your relationship with God. So I want to just read these three verses to you because they're kind of out of the blue. If you've been studying scripture on your own outside of this and you, you kind of prepare for Wednesday nights, you've probably looked at these verses and maybe you thought, these are kind of odd. Like, I'm not sure exactly why they're here. They seem out of place a little bit, and you're not sure, um, honestly, what they have to do with the verses before, or even maybe the verses after. And so we're going to tackle that tonight. But let me read to you verse 12, 13, and 14. John says, and this is almost poetic, I am writing to you, little children. So he addresses one group of people here, and then you're going to see two more. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, this is verse 13, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So he's addressed little children, fathers, young men. I write to you, children, so now he starts over again, because you know the father. Lots of repetition. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So he's already said that once. (laughs) Now that's again. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. Okay, so right off the bat, let's just kind of clear up the big structure, um, or find some clarity in the structure of this tonight. It would be really easy for me to take those three groups of people that he addresses, little children, uh, young men, and fathers, and say, oh, this is going to be the the three-point sermon. It's easy. It's good there. But scholars disagree on the interpretation of it. Two common interpretations would be that these three groups of people that he's addressing are, number one, um, just different ages. Just different ages. Problem is, Where's the ladies at? <laughs> why, why, knowing that there's ladies involved, why wouldn't he mention ladies? And he mentions little children over and over other places, right? So he doesn't break it down like this anywhere else. So why, why does he? We don't really know. Um, the second interpretation would be, and this is where it'd be easy as a preacher to latch onto this one and say, yeah, let's do that one, is that when he refers to little children, he's talking about those symbolically who are uh, spiritually immature. And then he says, young men, okay, those are the only, those of us who are growing spiritually, uh, but still kind of toddlers in the faith. And then fathers, those who are spiritually mature. It'd be easy to grasp onto that and say, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is going to be easy. We'll identify with it easily. But that's probably not the case either. Um, you see all through scripture, you look at something like uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, Pentecost, where um, uh, the book of Joel in the Old Testament is quoted by Peter, and it says that your uh, old men will dream dreams, your young, men's will ha- young men will have visions, and, and we see um, all throughout scripture, in that passage and, and everywhere, sometimes when groups of people are addressed like that, your young men, uh, old men, whatnot, it's essentially saying, all of you, 
So it's lumping everyone together. You say, y'all are going to have dreams and visions. It's it's not like young men can't have dreams and old men can't have visions, right? Like we we see that these three, uh, more than likely, these three different groups of people all refer to just us as Christians, just us as Christians. So I say all that just to kind of clear that up because we're not going to dive into that for the rest of tonight. Um, But don't get hung up on names, the little children, the young men, the fathers. uh, It's just referring to you and me. It's all of us. It's all of us. Now, on top of that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, scholars debate how in the world do these three verses, almost kind of a a poem with lots of repetition, how do they relate to the verses around them? Here's the thing. I think they're very crucial because what John is doing is as important as what he's saying. He has given them some tough teaching up until this point. He's pulling back for a second and he's giving them some assurance. Like This is what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd uh, challenges, but then encourages. You don't just beat people down. You make sure to encourage them. And so last... uh, couple weeks, he's had some rough teaching, some tough teaching, and now he is lifting them up. He's lifting them up. Do you find yourself uh, questioning your faith um, in a way that just kind of breeds insecurity? I think we all have, if we're honest. I think some of us still do. All of us, I think, struggle to some extent. Uh, Maybe you have been beaten up this week by sin by question marks uh, about how God feels about you, uh, your ability to obey him, and you've struggled with insecurity to the point where you just almost, you just need someone to assure you, (laughs) someone to just come and give you some words of affirmation. Like, please tell me I'm going in the right direction. Have you ever needed that before? That's kind of where we are in the book of 1 John. It was crucial for them back then, and i got to imagine uh, for some of us tonight it is going to be crucial. You see, there is um, a couple reasons why they were insecure, these believers. Number one, they had the false teachers telling them, you've got to have this mystic knowledge of God. You can't. Everything you've been taught about this relationship and obedience and all that good stuff, faith, like, that's okay, but it doesn't really save you. Like, their world was shaken by that. And then on the flip side, they've got John coming in saying, I'm going to write to you, church in Ephesus, but I'm refuting the false teachers, <laughs> but it's also really challenging to you. So they're like, but what John's saying about don't hate and love and like, that's hard to obey. And I'm kind of insecure that I can even live up to what God wants for my life. And so do I be insecure because of the false teachers making me question everything? Or am I insecure because of John and this tough teaching? Well, I suppose that... Uh, Based on where you find yourself standing, insecurity can be good or bad. It can be bad if you find yourself as a follower of Jesus with simple childlike faith, just trying to follow him, and you hear this and you come away discouraged. That would be, that'd be a bad insecurity. Right? I hope you leave here tonight encouraged that you are assured of your salvation and your faith. On the flip side, insecurity could be a good thing <laughs> if you're standing in the wrong spot. So maybe for some of you tonight, you're going to hear some of this and you're going to say, maybe I shouldn't be so sure about where I stand with Christ. Maybe I have deceived myself. Maybe my version of Jesus isn't the Bible's version of Jesus. If that's the case, uh, it's good to get woken up a little bit. But where you stand changes everything. I I remember um, (laughs) about this time last year, uh, there was a church planning organization in Florida that I had heard about for years. I had heard the president speak. He was a well-known evangelical pastor that left the, his church to go start this organization. And he started this church planning initiative that has been making a huge impact all around the world. And it's kind of tugged at my heart for years. And so about this time last year, uh, Tara and I got together and said, yeah, you know what? Tithes and offerings, we, we give to the church, but we want to give outside of that. We're looking for opportunities. So we gave several hundred dollars in the month of January, just beginning of the year, thought, let's just do it. Instead of giving monthly, we just gave one lump sum. So that's context. Well, a couple weeks after we give this gift, not thinking anything about it, I get a phone call from the president uh, of this organization. Now, I'm not going to name names, but like he, he was kind of, he's well known. Like he, 
I don't know why he would be calling me, to be honest. But he's calling me, leaving a couple voicemails. I'm like, I don't know, should I call him back? This is weird. Finally, he gets a hold of me, and he's telling me, um, you know, he's so thankful for me. He's asking how my family's doing. He's asking, like, like personal questions, making it feel like we're buddies. And I'm like, this is odd. I don't even know this guy. Is this normal? Like, when you give a gift like this, it, like, it's not that big of a gift, do they call you personally? Like, man, this is like amazing customer service. I, I just didn't understand what was going on. A couple weeks later, now, I get emails from whatever. A couple weeks later, he calls me. He's like, Ryan, let's go somewhere. Nepal, July, how are you feeling about it? I'm just like, Nepal, what is happening here? I don't understand why. He, I don't even know you. I never met you. But he wants me to go to Nepal with him and like nine or ten other guys. Not for a mission trip, just kind of like a vision tour of things. He's like, if you can't do Nepal, let's do India. He's throwing all these. I'm like, okay, what do I do? do?" And so I'm just, I'm kind of flattered. I'm like, man, I don't know if like I can even get off work for that long. And he he didn't quite understand what I was saying. I was like, man, like I got supervisors. He said, oh, wait, you're not the senior pastor? And I was like, no, I'm just a pastor guy. I'm at one of the campuses. There's a few thousand people, but I'm not the... He's like, oh, you're not the senior pastor, and you're, you're not even at the main campus? I'm like, no. And he said, and he, I could tell he was stumped. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Dude, I said, I, we just gave, this is just my wife and I, we just gave a one-time gift. It's not even like a monthly thing. And he's like, oh, I thought you were the senior pastor of a church of 3,000, and you guys were wanting to come on board and really pour into this ministry immediately when he realized I was just an average Joe, he stopped inviting me. He said, oh, oh, well, that makes sense. We didn't talk. We haven't talked ever since then. Like that was it. He didn't invite me back to Nepal. He realized, dude, now that I know where you stand, changes things. And so as we walk through this tonight, I I hope um, that for all of us, we kind of have that, oh, okay. I know where I stand with God now. It's going to change how we act and behave and walk from here on out. I've been looking to fit that weird story into a sermon for a long time. This is about the best place. So we're going to go a little bit slow tonight. We're just going to stop three places. um, And these verses are kind of going to be scrambled together. But we're going to see three things that give us assurance. Let's go back to verse 12. He said, I'm writing to you, little children, again, don't get hung up on names, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, this is a powerful verse. The first thing that we see is that we trust God's glory. You want to know if you are following Jesus, if you can have some assurance uh, in your faith, you trust God's glory. Now, it doesn't automatically connect the dots. You're like, how sins are forgiven for his name's sake? How does that relate to trusting God's glory? Listen, uh, it'll, it'll be clear, and I hope, I hope, I hope that I do some kind of justice in, in sharing this tonight, um, because if it hits you hard, it will change your world. Let's uh, see a couple key words, though. First, forgiven. So remember, this means the removal of guilt. He says, your sins have been forgiven. You don't have guilt over what's been done because the punishment has been paid on the cross by Jesus Christ. But then it also says, for his name's sake. Now, the word sake, that's really important. Some of your translations, um, and you can even throw your hand up if you have a translation that says account. Anyone have a translation that says account? The word sake means account. Now, this means a couple things. That God's account is the one who paid for our forgiveness of sin. So it's Jesus who did it. It wasn't anything that we could do on our own, right? And then number two, it's also for him. You say, how is my forgiveness of sin for God? This is where we're going to connect the dots here in just a second. Now, keep in mind, again, context. Believers were insecure uh, after these false teachers had come in and shaken up their world, they were insecure that maybe maybe everything I've believed has been wrong. Maybe I'm not really forgiven of sin. Maybe, like, I'm going to hell. They're, they're, they're questioning everything. You ever had something big in your life taken away that made you just question everything? Now, you ever got that phone call um, that you didn't expect saying someone close to you died? Just gut-wrenching. Or maybe... Uh, the doctor said, hey, the cancer's back. Or uh, maybe you, your boss looked at you from across the desk and said, you, you don't have a job here anymore. 
And you went from, I felt like I was on solid footing to, I don't have a clue what's going on in my life right now. It happens. It happens. For these believers, that's how they felt with forgiveness. Do you, do you feel like, do you struggle with insecurity when it comes to forgiveness? Like, do, you, do you feel like, man, sometimes I just, I just don't know. I don't know how God could forgive me. It's one thing to forgive my past sin, but I keep making mistakes. I keep making mistakes. You see, it's been said um, that insecurity is simply finding security in the wrong things. Insecurity is simply finding security in the wrong things. And so if you find yourself insecure with forgiveness, more than likely your emphasis and your focus are on the wrong things. More than likely, if you're insecure about your own forgiveness of sin, it's because you're placing too much emphasis on your ability to live up to God's standards, uh, your faith in God, and you need to shift your focus back to, hey, this is about God. This is about what he did, his work, his glory. This is, this is on God. Not that we don't have any responsibility in this, but I think Christians beat themselves up because we put too much emphasis on our own part in the forgiveness of sins. You say, well, I still just don't feel like, I don't, I don't feel like I deserve forgiveness. Well, join the club on that. Join the club. I don't know that any of us uh, ever feel like we deserve it, but let me ask you a bigger question. Do you trust God to uh, fulfill his own will, to hold up his end of the bargain? You say, well, yeah, of course I do. Yeah, I do. Well, then you start to realize this, that salvation is for us, but it's not necessarily about us. The forgiveness of sins what Jesus did on the cross, it is for you and I, but it's not necessarily about you and I. This is what I'm saying, that this will change your world. And it sounds simple, and you're going to hear me say it, and you're going to be like, that's not that big of a deal. If it hits your heart, it will rock your world. When you realize, as a Christian, that the Bible is not just God's love story for you, but this is about Him. It is about His glory. It is about pointing to Him on the throne. It is about God. When you realize that this whole message is more about God than you, chains are going to fall off. When you start approaching the Word of God, you're reading it in your daily devotional time tomorrow morning, and you're not thinking, what can I get out of this? But you're thinking, this is God. <laughs> this is His Word. This is His power. Like, I'm, I'm just here as someone to, to uh, praise Him and honor Him and to just read His words. This is not about me and what I can get to fill myself today. And you're going to find yourself filled with something you've been needing from the beginning. That's going to be His Spirit working in you. Then your faith won't be so self-centered. The whole Bible, the whole point of life is about God's glory. You say, what is glory? What, what is God's glory? It's hun- literally the Bible endlessly talks about God's glory, his own zeal for his own glory. Like God is for God. God is about himself and exalting himself. You say, this sounds selfish. Well, if you are God, you are worthy of it. Anything less would be odd. But it, listen, John Piper, he, um, he, he defined God's glory this way, and, and it's always stuck with me. He said, it's the going public of God's infinite worth. It's the going public of God's infinite worth. So we over and over and over, you see, when the heavens are full of God's glory. The earth is full of God's glory. We're here to, um, to reflect God's glory. Like God, we can't add to his glory, but like we are here to glorify him. Like, glory, 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 glory. What is God's glory? It is, it is God's fame. It is his, his invisible attributes. It's his uh, essence. It is his presence. It is him being awesome and holy and perfect, colliding with us in time and creation and space. It is us seeing the radiance of God. And the purpose of all of creation and your life and mine is to proclaim him, to make him famous, to point to his worth. To point to his worth. Worth. 
And God's glory does something to humanity. You look at Isaiah chapter 6, and you see God's glory shows up. Isaiah is blown away. God's glory makes you fear God, and yet it shows you the love of God. God's glory makes you repent, and yet it fills you with his spirit. God's glory makes you drawn to him, and yet it sends you out to want to speak of him. God's glory changes humanity, but it always draws attention to him because he is the one who is worth it. If you are focused on your own glory, you'll find that doesn't that don't burn very long. And when it comes to being insecure about the forgiveness of your sins, if you're insecure, it's because you're focusing on your own glory. And God's like, if you get caught up in my glory, this is why this is so crucial. This is a game changer. People don't like this kind of teaching because it sounds like we're talking <laughs> just endlessly about God and not necessarily how we are blessed by him, but we're just talking about, and it's, I'm saying, yes, yes, that's the point. His name's sake. Here's why you and I have confidence. This is what I'm saying. You and I have assurance of the forgiveness of sins. We have assurance that we are Christians because God's name is at stake. He's not going to say, hey, I want to save you and then just let you go. He's not going to say, my son died for you, but hey, you better live up for it. You better live up to it. Be insecure. He's not saying that. The appeal of the gospel, uh, you know what? If, if you wanted to know how cross, how we could just fill the pews for us, the chairs, if we wanted to fill we could talk endlessly about how God blesses and benefits us. And you say, well, yeah, we wouldn't do that. That's what, honestly, a good chunk of evangelical preaching has become. How, how God can bless you. How he can benefit you. But I'll tell you what, revival will happen in this country when the church says, it is not about me. The appeal of the gospel is not that God, through Jesus, has finally said, look, you are the apple of my eye. You are the star of the show. Revival in this world, in this country, in this state, in this city, in this very own church will happen when God's people say, we don't care about what we get out of this relationship. We just care about God. We just want God. We just know as creation, we are created by him and from him and for him and through him. We just want to praise him. When that becomes our heart cry, you won't have insecurity about whether you are forgiven or not. You'll just know God is God. (laughs) If he says, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. His name is at stake. He ain't going to go back on his word. He ain't going to do it. He ain't going to do it. You see, the appeal of the gospel is not that you are the apple of God's eye, you are the star of the show, it's that you never will be. I know this doesn't attract crowds of people. Because the freedom that you have as a Christian is very much so what you gain in Christ, but it's also what you lose in yourself. That you don't have to be the star of the show. That you don't have to be the most important piece to the puzzle. That God in and of himself is enough. He is sufficient. And that you lose yourself and you find him. That's the appeal of the gospel. That's why it's crazy to a world who is self-centered. But as Christians, if we don't get obsessed with the glory of God, we will stay stagnant in our faith because we will constantly be trying to come to a glorious God, pulling away blessings for ourselves. And he's like, you don't, you don't understand You don't understand. When it comes to the forgiveness of sins, we are benefiting by what he has done. You ever benefited from someone else's work? The idea that the cross is maybe more about God than it is us. Seems crazy. Seems crazy. But we benefit from people's work all the time. I went into the uh, dealership for our car the other day. I don't know why I feel like I have to tell you guys about my car every weekend, but um, <clears throat> well, I went in, and the last couple times that I've been in, they have mentioned to me at the service desk that there's been a recall. Matter of fact, one of the recalls was like a hood latch, and I actually I started looking into it, and they said there's a faulty hood latch, and sometimes people um, had found themselves driving down the road, and it pops open 
on them. And that's, that's the risk. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. But I know that when they call or they tell me about these recalls and they say, we're going to fix the problem. Like you would think that that would breed insecurity because like, oh, there's an issue. How long have I been driving with this issue? But like, I actually have a lot of peace. I know why I have peace. Peace about recalls. I don't doubt that Nissan or any other car dealership, I don't doubt that they care about consumer safety. I, I hope they do. I'm sure they do. But you want to know why I really am not insecure about recalls? Because they're going to fix it because their name is on the line. Because their name is on the line. I don't have to hassle them. I, don't, I didn't have to show up and say, hey, did you get that recall? Right, for sure. Like, did you knock that out? Like they're, they're taking care of it because their name is on the line. If Nissan does that for their own name, how much more will the God of the universe make sure that you and your insecurity cannot pull Jesus off of that cross? How much more is the God of the universe going to make sure that your failures today does not negate your faith today? He's not going to be the hero of his own show and get knocked off of that stage. It brings him glory that you have assurance. Like that, that statement alone needs to give some of us peace. The reason you can have peace tonight, it brings him glory and fame for you to be sure that you are forgiven. So rest. Rest. Second, we'll stop here and then we'll stop one other place as we walk through these verses. This is a, kind of two verses scrambled together. This is uh, the first part of verse 13 and the third part, that's A and C there, and then the first part uh, of 14 as well. And it has the second theme that you and I find for assurance. He says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he says, I'm right to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So again, if you just erase the children, the father's part, and you just look at these parts here, two things say exactly the same. That's kind of interesting. And then the middle piece, because you know the father. The second thing we see is that we trust his presence and his promises. His presence and his promises. This is how you know. You can have some surety in your faith. Now, key word, obviously, is know. You see it in all three of these parts of the verse. We know him, we know the Father, we know him. Now, it's actually referring to two parts of the Trinity here. Him who is from the beginning, based on the um, first and second chapter of First John, he's referring to Jesus. And not just the beginning of time, but even the beginning of his ministry. So that's where we talk about the presence. What John is saying is, listen, guys, you don't have to freak out about your faith. You don't have to be insecure because you have known him. You saw him on earth. We, we talk about him. You, you saw him heal people. You saw his goodness. You saw his physical presence. That's a big deal. And you know it. And then he, he sandwiches this middle part. Because you know the Father. So he's talking about Jesus and the Father. He says, you've been saved. You're forgiven of sin. But you know God. You know Father. You have a relationship, an ongoing, daily growing relationship with him. That counts for something. That gives you surety that you are saved. If you pray that prayer, you say, you know what? I had an altar call experience and I placed my faith in Jesus. But then you don't actually have a relationship with the Father. You don't know him. That's a reason for insecurity. If you look back and say, I prayed a prayer, but I didn't have a relationship, that's, that's obviously something that's probably good to be insecure about. God's saying, that's, that's missing the whole point. To know him. That word know means to be acquainted with through observation. They had tasted fellowship. They had heard his promises. And they had experienced this relationship. John's saying, listen, the false teachers have been talking to you, whispering in your ear, but don't believe the lies. You know God. You know God. You ever had someone close to you get accused of something and you couldn't believe it? Right now, I know if you're a parent, you definitely know this because anytime anyone says anything about our kids, we say, oh no, he couldn't do that. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that. 
And then you found that you were deceived. Maybe someone you, you knew your whole life behaved in a way that completely threw you off. I think all of us, if you look through our relationships, we've had times where we were deceived by people, we were disappointed by people, we gave them the benefit of the doubt, and they broke our trust. And in those cases, their physical presence, (laughs) their promises to you in that relationship, didn't seem to matter much. And it makes you question things. I think we've all been there. Some of us live in a culture of fearing and not trusting people. And it translates over into our relationship with God. Like, have you guys ever, um, you you ever done the buy-sell trade thing? Facebook, anyone buy-sell trade? Like, every six months or so, Tara and I will go through all our stuff and say, let's just get rid of anything we can, right? You know, we kind of purge once in a while. And we'll sell some stuff on buy-sell trade. Probably done maybe 20, 25 transactions at first, you don't know really what to expect, but then you find this kind of culture of people who get on buy-sell trade. You can see some of the same faces. I would guess at least a third to a half. This is not scientific statistics right here, but this is me guessing. A third to a half at least of the people who have said, hey, yeah, I'll, I want to buy that and I'll meet you here at this time, have either not shown up over the years, either they back out, Something happens. I mean, we've waited 30, 40 minutes in the church parking lot waiting to do some Cops probably thought it was a drug deal or something. Like, what is that guy doing out there? We, we have waited for people just to find out that they didn't honor their own word. And then when you do have someone honor their word, you're skeptical because you're like, well, I don't want them to come to my house. What if they, like, come back and murder me or something? Like, this is weird. So you're like, you've got to meet somewhere else. Like, it's just this whole culture in your mind of, I'm glad I'm selling my stuff. But this kind of feels like the worst of humanity. Like this is the worst interactions that we have with people in a civilized way. You just have a lack of trust. You don't know, are they going to show up or are they not? Do you want them to show up? Do you trust them to even be around you? It's just an odd environment. But yet some of us take that same lack of trust and we project it onto God. It makes us insecure. When God sent his son to die on the cross... It was an exclamation mark of his presence and his promises in your life. Not a question mark. It was the exclamation mark. And that's a game changer. There is nothing more God could do to show you how much he wants to be in your life, how much he wants his presence and his promises to flood you and overwhelm you than to send his son. So he's going to live like you. He's going to live among you. He's going to die for you. And my spirit's going to live in you when you place your faith in him and call him Lord. Like he has stamped us with his presence. And you can trust that. You say, but what? I trust people and they let me down. I struggle that like, maybe, maybe if I trust God and start this relationship, I'm going to find out one day that I, uh, I'm just talking to the ceiling and I just feel silly. Well, if you find yourself deceived, you need to know. God's not a deceiver. And so either the old devil deceived you or you deceived yourself. It's true, people do those things all the time. We probably have people in in our midst, certainly in the church, that uh, treat God like their personal genie. And they find out sometimes in nights like tonight that this isn't the God of the Bible that I have a relationship with. Not at all. So, let me ask this. Um, maybe you say, can I trust then my experience in a relationship with God? Because it isn't, isn't it kind of subjective? Some of us in this room, if we were honest, I said, okay, you know you're saved because you have a relationship with Jesus. How many of us would think, yeah, I talk to him, but I don't necessarily hear from him. If it's based on how much I hear from him, how much he partakes in the relationship, I don't know that I'd be super sure because we feel like that's lacking. Right? So how much can you trust your experience with him? Well, you can trust experience only when it's backed by truth. Experience by itself is subjective, right? But when it's laying on objective truth, what the word of God says. So, so maybe the bigger question is, are you experiencing in your relationship with Jesus the things that the Bible says you will experience? 
So now we get into the promises part. Are you experiencing what the Bible says you're going to experience? So what does the Bible say? Literally hundreds of promises through the Old Testament, New Testament. When you look at your own relationship with God, are you experiencing these? I'll just rifle some. He he promises joy. Do you have joy in him? He he promises comfort in your afflictions. Do Do you have comfort? He promises peace that transcends understanding. When I say promises, I'm just simply saying the things that God has said, this is what will happen if you do this or if you don't do that. He says, you'll have a new heart, a new spiritual heart that desires him, seeks him. Do you experience that? A new identity. You're a new creation. There's promise after promise after promise. He says he's going to provide for you. Have you experienced provision? He says that you can rest. Do you experience spiritual rest in your relationship with God? Even though this relationship with God can be subjective at times, when you experience the promises, the things that he said, you will experience if you have a true relationship with me. Um, Then that's when you know that you know that you know that you know. For the last five months, we have been going through this worship leader search. And the team that we have um, is awesome. They are solid. I'm thankful. There's six of us total. And we have been meeting Wednesday nights uh, after cross-training, sometimes until... 11 o'clock, sometimes after 11 o'clock. They, they just go on and on. We analyze, we pray, we, we do all kinds of things. And it has had a bunch of ups and downs. And through all those ups and downs, you kind of get to the point where you're like, I don't know if we're ever going to decide. Like even if God sends the person, he's saying, this is going to be the person. He's going to have to do like a work just to unify this thing because we have such a culture now of, even though we all love each other in this, this team, we have a culture of picking things apart and saying, well, here's some pros on there and there's some cons on there. And, oh, I don't like the way they did this and I don't like that. Like, it's going to take a work of God just to unify this thing. And then we have three candidates that come in. If you've been around for the past three weeks, you've seen all three of these candidates they come in to lead worship, interviews. We spend hours with them. We invite them over to our house. We hang out. We do a, uh, two hours of just face-to-face interview. We do lots of stuff with them. And we kind of have, you know, oh, this is kind of our number one going in, number two, number three, you know, just general stuff. But then they come, and they're all pretty solid. And we're thankful. After the whole, all three weeks are done, we're thankful because they were all solid. But all of them <laughs> seem to exceed expectations, honestly, in some ways the water got muddier than ever before. By the middle of the last weekend, I was talking to one of the team members and I was like, I have no idea. Like this is more complicated now than ever. In our humanity, there's no real way that we're going to be able to say, yep, that one's clearly better than the other two. Like that, that just ain't going to happen. It's got to be of God. As I was praying about it Monday morning and God just gave me a peace. Peace that I haven't felt for five and a half months since we started this thing. I was thinking to myself, whoa. Who he told me was not the one that we thought. Matter of fact, it was the one that I least thought. Matter of fact, it was the one that I least thought so much that I was questioning even when we brought him in. Maybe just don't even come. I feel bad for you. Like this isn't going to work out. Because we got two other solid candidates. and, And God... This guy blew us away. And even then, though, God gave me a peace. And he gave me a peace all of, of the, the rest of the day and the next day. And we gathered last night. And we came to the table. And everyone had peace. And this is what I'm talking about. In our relationship with Jesus, do you experience these promises? For us and that team, there was no lack of clarity. There was no lack of clarity. We, we felt amazing because we had such peace last night we offered him this morning he accepted this afternoon we got a new worship pastor coming in a month and we knew that we knew that we knew that we knew for us going through five and a half months of turmoil when you experience a promise of god and his presence in a way that only he can give it gives you assurance. It was very clear to us in that meeting. Do you have those promises? Let me challenge you. Make a list. 
You can cheat. You can Google. But make a list of God's promises. As you're just studying his word daily, just mark next to it. Promise. That's what he says will happen. Promise, promise. And ask yourself, do I experience these things? And if not, what markers are marking my life and my relationship with him? Am I experiencing things that he, he said, you shouldn't experience these? Like, is my, is my relationship with Jesus marked by frustration, shame, guilt, condemnation? Things he says, you're free of those. You might be experiencing the opposite of promises. But challenge yourself. Last but not least. Verse 13b, the middle part of that, and then also uh, the last part of verse 14. He says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So that's the, the third theme here, overcoming. That's how we have assurance. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So again, just like in the last one, repetitive, same thing. Last thing we see here is that we trust in his power. So you and I have assurance because we trust in God's glory, that this is about God more than it's about us. We trust because we have his presence and we recognize his presence in our lives and he has promised us his presence. And then we are assured because we trust his power. We trust his, his power. The word overcome. It actually... Um, means both past and current victory. So this is something that, that you have experienced in the past, that you have overcome, but also that you continue to overcome. It says that they are strong. This means mighty, that you have a great force behind you, in you. And then word. You've got the truth, the message. This is literally logos, the, the word, the Bible, the truth, the message is in you. God's word dwells in you. And you have overcome. So what John is saying, he's saying, you have assurance because you and I, we have a great force in us that makes us victorious over the power of past, present, and future sin. Let me ask you, is that you? We all struggle with sin. Some of us, we were tied up in some habitual sin. Is that you today? Are you struggling with insecurity because you know that sin has gripped you in a way that it does not feel like it is going to be letting you go anytime soon? For the first three, four, five years of my relationship with Christ, I saw in repentance some sins that had, had grabbed onto me. I saw them fall off easy. I cussed like a sailor before I followed Jesus. And that was something within the first few months of placing my faith in him, like it just just went away. But then there was other things that I had that gripped my heart and they just continued for years. And I struggled. How could these things still grip my heart? And I can call myself a child of God? No, it just doesn't. It just clashes. But God says, you got power. Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto Christ Jesus for salvation for all who would believe. The power of God. The power of God. That means if your faith is in the gospel, you should be experiencing power. You should be experiencing power, not just to save, but to sanctify. Not just your past sins, but overcoming your current sins. Let me ask you this, just straight up. Is, if someone from the outside, let's say a non-believer, looked at your life, would they see power, like a bigger power than, than your own strength? Would they say there's something powerful happening in your life? Is there any power? You could say, well, I'm insecure because I don't feel the power, Right? I don't feel it. I don't feel the power. But listen, you and I, we live and act and behave based on feeling power, but knowing it's there every day. Every day. Listen, electricity. Can you feel electricity? Yes. If you have never been shocked, I won't do an illustration, but 
you can feel electricity in powerful ways. But do you have to feel electricity in order for it to work? No. It works both ways. When you feel it and when you don't, doesn't really change the power, does it? Changes your experience with the power. And if you're a feeler and you place a lot of emphasis on your emotions, then yeah, feeling it seems like the way to go. At least when it comes to God, not electricity. I mean, you think about your very own heart. You've got SA nodes, AV nodes in your heart that that pump. There's electrical impulses in your body. But how many of you walk around and say, oh, I can feel electricity. (laughs) Oh, it's going, oh, there we go. Like, hopefully you don't. But you still trust your heart to beat, don't you? All the time. So you and I, we don't live based on what we feel, but what we know is true. So here, here's um, bigger questions. Is the Holy Spirit in me? Well, let me ask you, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit's power in you? Let's go back to the, the light thing, if you don't, or the electricity thing. If you don't um, feel the electricity, but you know it's working, how do you know it's working? How do we know that there's electricity working, powerful, in this room? Lights. So, is the Holy Spirit working in you? Do you have revelation that can only come from the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit changing your desires for God? So, a lot of times, this is the irony of insecurity. Those who are insecure the most are actually the ones who should be the most sure of their faith because they want to be sure of their faith. They say, I want to follow Jesus. I'm just so insecure. And as a pastor, I look at them and say, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to know what the Bible says about all of humanity, that there is none that are righteous. Like we don't have a spiritual bone in our body. We don't seek God. We don't seek supernatural things. Who put the desire in you to seek God? Well, I guess God did that. See, you're coming to me insecure that you're saved. I'm saying (laughs) the fact that you want to follow Jesus is evidence of God's spirit moving in you. Have some surety in that. Look for those things that only God can do in you. You say, man, I've got a desire to follow him. I believe he's changing my heart. I've got the lights going on. There's some revelation, but I still struggle. I still struggle. Let me... We don't have much time, but let me do this. Let me, let me start to close it out. I'll, I'll do this and then I'll pray for you. Let me just read this to you. Um, I was reading this yesterday and, and it stuck out to me. It just hit me. This is uh, Luke chapter 4 and I'll just, I'll just read uh, the first 14 verses. This is Jesus and his temptations, right? Remember, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to that temptation. I'm going to ask you after I read these verses, does anything stand out to you? Does anything stand out to you in this passage about Jesus and his experience with power? It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, he was baptized there, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry understatement. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all the authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, it will come. You see what happened? The old devil starts using the word of God, twisting it. Um, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, you probably heard that preached a whole bunch of times. 
in your mind what, what stands out about this passage. Now, if I'm going to be a good Southern Baptist preacher, I'm going to break this down into a three-point sermon, say there's three different temptations. One's your stomach, the things of this world, and one's the power and glory, and one's this, blah, blah, blah. That's how we hear it preached all the time. You hear about the temptations and the details of it, don't you? But you know what I'm blown away by? The first and last verse. The first and the last verse say this. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was led then by the Holy Spirit. to get. And the last verse, skipping after the in-between stuff, the last verse says, he came back to Galilee by the power of the Spirit. So you're full of the Spirit, you're led by the Spirit, you experience the power of the Spirit. In between, what does Jesus do in the midst of his temptation? What, what does he use against the devil? The Word of God. It knows, he's saying, the Word of God abides in you. You're strong, you have overcome. How do you and I, how do you and I experience the power of God? You got the Word of God in you, and you got the Spirit of God in you. And those two things, it don't matter what temptations we're talking about. You can fill in the blanks of all verses 2 through 13, right? It don't matter what the struggle in your life is. If you got the Word of God in you, and you got the Spirit of God in you, they will overcome everything. Do you experience that victory? Can you, can you tell another Christian that you disciple, I experience this kind of power and victory over sin in my life? doesn't matter what your struggle is. You've got the Word of God in you. You devote yourself to the Word of God. You dig into that. You just chew it up. You've got a job. You work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. You wake up in the morning. You get into the Word of God. I don't care about daily devotions and making sure that, okay, I got this and I got everything perfect and I got a perfect little planner for it. Who cares? Just dig into the Word of God. And at lunch, you got 30 minutes to eat some lunch. You sit at your desk, you eat your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you dig into the Word of God a little bit. Give yourself a little bit of time. And you come home from work and you're tired and you're saying, God, please help me love my spouse, help me love my wife, whatever. You dig into the Word of God when you get home. It's got to live in you. It's got to abide in you. His Holy Spirit, you say, God, daily. What's stopping you from just asking, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit? And, and if you chew on God's word, you will be filled with his Spirit. God, lead me by your Spirit. I know I'm going to work just like I go every day, but lead me today. Open my eyes spiritually to things that I didn't know I would even come in contact with. Give me power over sin. And you'll experience that power. Guys, we could talk about each one of these all night long, and so I'll, I'll cut it off. But let me say this. Even after all that, I know that there's probably some in here that still feel a little bit of bondage spiritually in your heart. And so I want to just end with, with a prayer, um, one that you pray for yourself, one that I'm going to pray over you, pray over myself. I'm going to claim this victory because even when you don't feel the power, you know the power is there and some of us just need to proclaim it over everything we're going to and through. Uh, and so I think we need uh, we need the power of sin if it's gripping some hearts tonight to loosen its grip and the gospel and the Holy Spirit can do that. So let me pray over you and over myself.